hope you have a Bible with you this morning. I want you to see some things for yourself. If you don't have one, either a, a normal, regular Bible in your hands or your phone or an iPad, there are Bibles in the chair racks. Grab one. I want you to see some things this morning. It's necessary for you to see it with your own eyes so that it can soak in and become a part of who you are. But let's begin by looking up here on the screen. Take a look at this. This is from Charles Spurgeon. It sets the stage for what we're going to talk about out of Psalm chapter 37. Listen close. Do not let anything set your heart beating so fast as love for Him. Let this ambition fire your soul. May this be the foundation of every enterprise upon which you enter. That is really good. That's so good, I would encourage you to write that in the cover of your Bible. Just open up to one of those blank pages and write those words in there. And then let your eyes fall on those words on a regular basis. Maybe every morning before you open up your scriptures and start to read, you stop by here so that you find something that stirs your spirit, something that stirs your soul and gives you a deep hunger for what God has for you and keeps you on the straight and narrow. Terry, let's leave that up there for just a minute, and then we may even come back to it if need be, but write it down. Take a picture of it. Make sure that you hold on to that. Like I say, it sets the stage for what we're going to be looking at today. We have spent the last four weeks in Psalm chapter 37. We're going to be there again today and then next week. This is an amazing passage tucked away in the middle of our Bibles, given to us to help us stay calibrated in our walk with the Lord. It is what I refer to as a 24-hour spiritual rhythm designed by God to keep us walking a path with Him. It starts with the idea of trust. Last week, we talked about the idea of delighting in the Lord through His Word. Today, we're going to look at stop number three in this 24-hour spiritual rhythm. It's a word that's very familiar to us, but maybe we haven't thought about it as deeply as we should have. Join me now in Psalm 37. You'll see what I'm talking about. Verse 1. This is a psalm of David, King David. He writes, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Verse 5, here's the word that we're looking at today. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Now, here's that rhythm again. Every 24 hours, it starts over. We trust in the Lord. We delight in the Lord by delighting in His Word. Today, we're going to look at what it means to commit our ways to the Lord, and then we rest in the Lord. And then tomorrow, we start it over. We trust, we delight, we commit, we rest. When those four things become a part of who we are and a daily rhythm in our life, we will stay safely on the path with God. That's why this is given to us. And the Lord's mercies are new every morning, so we get to start over every day. Trust, delight, commit, rest. 
Trust, delight, commit, rest. Trust, delight, commit, rest. Here, say it with me. They'll drive it home for you. Ready? Trust, delight, commit, rest. Well, this morning we're looking at this little word, commit. You probably use it on a regular basis, but like we've already said, you may not have looked deeply at what the word means. Biblically, it takes on all kinds of different meanings. It is used in different ways. In this particular case, in Psalm 37, it's used in a very unique way in the Hebrew language, one that may be, at first glance, difficult for us to embrace. This word in the Hebrew language, and I'm not a a language expert, I am not a Hebrew expert, I have to use other sources to help me with this, and I don't do this as a preacher very often, but from time to time, getting into the original languages is very necessary. This is one of those times with this little word, commit. It is used three times in the Hebrew language to drive home different points. Psalm 37 is one of them. Let me show you a most unique use of it in the book of Genesis. Keep your finger there in Psalm 37. Maybe if you have a pencil, you want to write this verse in the margin of your Bible so that you'll be able to go back and connect the two and see the deeper meaning of it. We're going to the book of Genesis now, chapter 29, verse 10. This is in the midst of Jacob's story. Jacob is left home at his mother's bidding or her encouragement because, well, he's sideways with his brother. And so he's on the run for his life. He is looking for God's protection and God's provision, hoping for God's sovereignty to cover him. And he finds it in his uncle's household. Now, that's where his mother had told him to run to. And he did exactly what she said. But listen to what happens in verse 10. This is Genesis 29, verse 10. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Those three words, rolled the stone, in the Hebrew language, are the exact same word that we see in Psalm 37 for commit. Rolled the stone. Commit. Isn't that an interesting use in the original languages to see that type of a difference? We hear the word commit, and more than likely we would never think of rolling the stone. But the translators, when they looked at this in Genesis chapter 29 and they saw that Hebrew word, said this is the perfect application and the perfect translation for it. In Psalm 37, they boiled it down to just one word, commit. But in the Hebrew language, it's the exact same word, rolled the stone. Now, the other place that the word is used is in Isaiah chapter 41, speaking of rolling up the scrolls. So in Genesis chapter 29, the same word for rolled the stone away is the word used in Isaiah 41 for rolling up the scrolls. And then in Psalm chapter 37, it's the word commit. Now that's, that's kind of an interesting way of approaching this. But if we go back into Psalm 37 and we put it in context to what David is teaching us, we begin to see the depth of meaning that he has for us. Look at it again in verse 5 in that light. Roll the stone of your way to the Lord. 
Roll up your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will act. The language experts, the scholars, would tell you that really the use of this word in Psalm 37 carries this meaning. Roll the stone onto. Roll the stone onto the Lord. Roll the stone of your way onto the Lord. Roll the stone of your life onto the Lord. Roll the stone of everything that you are onto the Lord. The very connotation of it is this. You roll everything that you have onto God, and then you close the back trail. You close off every other path. You have rolled everything onto the Lord. There is no other option. There is no other way. You are with God fully and completely. I'm committed to God no matter what. There is no option of going backwards. There is no option of turning to the right or to the left. I have rolled everything onto God. That is a risky teaching. That is a risky idea. Because when we start talking about closing off the back trail or shutting off every other path, we're saying that we are with the Lord no matter what. No matter what comes our way, no matter what happens, I have rolled the stone of my life onto Jesus, and I'm not moving. I'm staying right here. It gets risky in places like this. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 and following, listen to this. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap, neither gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these." But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So when Jesus says that in Matthew chapter 6, and we put it in light of what David is teaching in Psalm 37, we're going to roll every aspect of every day onto the Lord, and we're going to trust Him. So if we're doing that in a 24-hour rhythm, a 24-hour cycle, and we're getting up in the morning and, and trusting God and then delighting in His Word, and then we're rolling our life onto Him, we're saying, God, it's all yours. I'm just waiting to see what you do with it, how you direct me, where you want me to go. And then we wait. The waiting can be the hardest part. The waiting can be the most difficult. Because if God doesn't answer right here, right now, we want to turn around and go the other way and, and take control back. We want to go the other way or maybe look to the right or to the left and choose a different path. But David's saying that's not an option because we have rolled onto Jesus every part of our life and we're trusting Him. It's with Him. 
I am committed, God, to what you do here. How you clothe me, how you feed me, how you take care of today's stresses, how you take care of all of the anxieties and the worries that I carry with me on a regular basis. Maybe you've said things like that. I'm rolling those onto you, and I'm leaving them right there. I'm leaving them right there. Lord, what you do with them, that's your business. I'm just here with you. Commit your ways to him. Trust in the Lord, David says. Commit your ways to him and trust in the Lord. Peter would drive that same type of teaching home in places like this in his writings. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Peter's teaching us, you roll everything onto him and then you trust his timing, no matter how hard the waiting is. Now, here's why that's risky. It doesn't just apply to things like how we're going to eat today and what we're going to wear and how we're going to pay the bills. It doesn't just apply to things like that. David illustrates it beautifully because do you remember in Psalm chapter 37, what he's struggling with the most is a deep question like this. Why do bad things happen to good people? And why do good things happen to bad people? Why, why is that? I don't get it. I've lived a righteous life and I've struggled, but I've seen people that have lived wicked lives and it's like they've never struggled with anything. God, I don't get it. That's what David's saying. It's his way of saying, hey, no fair. This isn't right. And God's giving him this 24-hour rhythm to help him work his way through issues like that in life. When it doesn't seem like things are fair. When it doesn't seem like the rain is falling on the just as much as it is falling on the unjust. You ever wrestle with that like David did? Boy, I have. I have. Well, there are some markers that God actually gave David in Psalm chapter 37 to help him through that so that he could roll those issues along with every other issue of his life onto the Lord. Here's three of the markers from Psalm 37. You can see them for yourself if you want to go through it. Number one, here's a, a truth to hold on to. God will act. Even when it seems like he's doing nothing, God will act. That's found in verse, chapter, or verse 5 of chapter 37. Number two. He will shelter us in His presence. Verse 28, God will take care of you. You just trust Him. Here's number three. He will uphold our fainting souls. Verse 17 and 24. So when you're getting weary and tired, you're not sure that you can make it make sense anymore, and you want to roll the stone back into your hands, you leave it with God. Because there's three markers to tell you that God can be trusted. And that's why David would say, roll the stone of your life onto the Lord and then trust Him. Because of things like this. But as I said just a minute ago, that's risky. That is risky. The greatest risk potentially is the fact that it will cause us to live differently when we do this. When we roll the stone of our life onto the Lord, we may have to live differently. And that is no more evident than in our faith. Our faith can change when we do this. Here's what I mean by that. 
If you've been around the church very long at all, you have seen some translation of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. I say some translation, it just depends on which version of the Bible you're reading from. You'll see these words in one form or another. This is out of the English Standard Version, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, that almost sounds cliche to us because we've heard it so much. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Okay, well, that's faith. I'm hoping for certain things, and I am convicted that those things are going to come my way. That's faith. We hear sermons on it and lessons on it all the time. That's why I say it's almost cliche to hear it like this or to read it like this. And that cliche leaves us wanting more. Thankfully, the Bible gives us some deeper teaching on this idea of faith. And a lot of it is tied to what David was writing in Psalm 37 about committing our ways to the Lord, trusting in Him. One of those deeper teachings on the idea of faith is found in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It is quite interesting what it is tucked into. So open with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. This is part of the reason that I told you I want you to see this for yourself. Don't just listen to me. You look at it in the Word of God. You test the Word of God. And you make sure that everything comes out true and sound. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now listen to this. I'm going to pull a nugget out of the middle of it, but it is surrounded by other nuggets. Here we go. Verse 6. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, here's the nugget I want you to hear, verse 7. For we walk by faith, not by sight. That is a really good verse to highlight or underline. Really easy verse to memorize, commit yourself to it. For we walk by faith, not by sight. But here's the other nuggets that are all around that verse. The Apostle Paul is talking about what happens to believers when we die. To be at home in the body is to be away from the Lord. But to be absent in the body is to be in the presence of the Lord. That's what happens to believers when we die. You take your last breath here, it precedes your first breath in heaven, and it is instantaneous. To be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. To be at home in the body is to be away from the Lord. So that's the, the nuggets that are all around this great teaching. But in the middle of that, Paul tucks this in there. We walk by faith, not by sight. As if to say that as long as we are present in the body and absent from the Lord, this is a requirement because we're not going to see in its entirety God's plan. We don't get the privilege of looking ahead. We have to live in the moment all the way unto death. 
and that removes from us our ability to question the sovereignty of God. Instead, what it does is strengthen within us our commitment to the sovereignty of God. Because I have rolled the stone of my life onto the Lord. There is no other option. I am trusting Him in life and death. And I am trusting Him all the way through life, committed to Him, having rolled the stone of my life onto Him. Every worry, every anxiety, every hope, every dream, every sorrow, every joyful moment, every bit of it is rolled onto Him unto death. Where, once I am in His presence, I'll get to walk by sight. I'll get to see it all. But until then, i got to learn to walk by faith. And the only way to do that is to roll the stone of my life onto Him. I like the way a young lady named Sarah, Tina, what's her last name? Sarah Claudia writes about this. She had God illustrate it for her in a very, very practical way. Tina's going to read for you some of Sarah Claudia's writings on this issue. Listen close. Since losing my sight in 2015, 2 Corinthians 5-7 has become my motto. It says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Over the last five years, I have seen this verse ring true in my life, both spiritually and literally, as I navigate the world without my sight. Merriam-Webster defines faith as belief in, loyalty to, and complete trust in God, and as a firm belief in something for which there is no proof. So what does it mean to navigate the world solely on your trust in God and on your belief in the unseen? What does it mean to walk by faith and not by sight? It means to keep moving even if you don't know where you are going. Martin Luther King Jr. said, Faith is taking the first step, even when you don't see the whole staircase. Those are some of the truest words I have ever heard. In this way, walk by faith, not by sight, means even though you might not be able to see where you're going, you keep moving. In Exodus 13, God is leading the Israelites out of Egypt. Instead of taking the easier, more direct route that they were more familiar with, God delivers them through the wilderness. You see, God knew what was ahead. He knew that the better journey for the people was the one that, to them, seemed harder and more treacherous. Moses and the Israelites, whom he was leading, did not know which way to go as they walked along, but God made his presence known. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Ethan on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night, in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. That was in Exodus 13, 20 through 22. Even though the people did not know where they were going, they kept moving and looked to God as their guide. Just like the Israelites, I had a very long, hard, and unfamiliar journey ahead of me after losing my sight, and I had no idea which way to turn. God did not choose to heal me physically, although this would have been the easy way out of my troubles. Instead, he chose to deliver me through the hardships and grief that my disability brought. God showed his presence to the Israelites as he guided them with a pillar of clouds and a fire by night. By following these signs, the Israelites were indeed delivered from Egypt. 
I too had to search for God's presence during my first few months of blindness, and I still lean heavily on his guidance today. Without my sight or a pillar of fire to guide me, I had to turn to my faith. When faced with my disability, I couldn't see the whole staircase, the whole big picture of my life, but I just took one little step at a time, trusting that God would show me that next step and guide me as I went, just like Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness. It also means to understand that there is more than what can be seen. When I lost my sight, I quickly became a lot less concerned with how I looked. Sure, I still wanted my hair to look nice and for my clothes to match, but I no longer spent what seemed like hours in front of the mirror making sure my makeup was perfect and each strand of hair was in the right place. It just was not as important to me anymore. Likewise, when I encountered others, I focused more on what they said, the emotion in their tone and the truth behind their statements rather than what they were wearing or if they were having a good hair day. As 2 Corinthians 4.18 tells us, those things are not that important anyway, as we look to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Like 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, this worldly body is really just a tent anyway. We have a much better dwelling place waiting for us in heaven, and what we see is not going to get us there, but what is in our hearts surely will. So walking by faith and not by sight means that we live today according to God's promises, even though we cannot see them, and not according to the temporary, arbitrary things that our eyes often focus on here on earth. And it means to trust God, even when you can't see him working. I think we have all had times in our lives when we think, is God even listening? Is he there at all? I know that I have definitely had these thoughts. When we are facing something difficult and we don't seem to get any relief from the pain, worries, or anxieties that it brings, even after praying relentlessly, it can be easy to feel as though God has abandoned us. I prayed constantly for healing after I lost my sight, and still do, but I still cannot see. Does that mean that God was not or is not working in my life? No way. I'll admit, I was very disappointed at first when I did not receive physical healing. I knew God had the power to do it, so why was he doing nothing? It took me time to realize that he was working in my life, just not the way that I wanted or could see at the moment. He was working on my heart, healing me spiritually. He was making me more patient so that I could wait for a new purpose. He was making me more confident, despite my disability, so that I could share what he had done in my life with others. We can see a biblical example of this in the book of Esther. Did you know that God is not mentioned once in this book? His hand is evident throughout it, though. He prepared Esther by making her queen and giving her courage, softened the king's heart towards Mordecai at the right time, and gave the Jews relief from their sorrow through all the events that would follow. Walking by faith, not by sight, means that, even though we may not see God working right now, we trust and believe that he is preparing us for blessings and relief from what we are facing somewhere down the road. It means that we keep rejoicing and praising him through the hard times, knowing that God is still in control. I love the way Sarah does that. She starts in her own personal illustration, and then she boils it down to the personal for all of us. She lost her physical sight, but she reminds us that if we're not careful, we can all lose our spiritual sight. 
Life can cause that to happen. So we have to figure out how to prevent that, and that's what this commit phase of the daily rhythm is all about. I have rolled the stone of my life onto the Lord no matter what, no matter what, and I will walk by faith, not by sight. Would be easy for you to say, okay, preacher, that sounds great. How do I do it? I'm glad you asked. There are some simple things that you can add to your life that help strengthen this commitment. The first I see as a necessity, you have to change your declarations before God. That means cutting off the back trail, shutting off the side trails to the right or the left. And the way we do that is found in a little expression that we discover in the Old Testament, and I'll show it to you in a minute. That little expression is right up here. But if not. Three words. But if not. Now let me show you what I'm talking about. Join me in the Old Testament book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 3. We're about to meet three popular guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you grew up in Sunday school, you know their story, but maybe you don't know this part of it. Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready when you hear the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Now listen to the next part of the story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. 
If this be so, our God whom you serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Now listen, this is verse 18, dial in, cut out everything else around you, listen to what they say. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods." Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps and the prefects, the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had, had not had any power over the bodies of those men. Their hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angels and delivered his servants who trusted him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in runs, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. That's what happens when we declare in our commitment, but if not. But if not. It means that we pray the way that we feel God is leading us to pray, and we choose not to hedge any bets, so we simply say, but if not, nothing will move me. But if not, if I end up in the furnace, so be it. God will either meet me there or not. He'll meet me after the furnace. Whatever the case may be, I will stand with Him. There is an intricate difference between praying a but if not prayer or making a but if not declaration and a not my will but yours be done declaration. Jesus, of course, said that in the Garden of Gethsemane before he went to the cross, not my will but yours be done. And a lot of people pray that way. They'll offer a prayer and say, Lord, this is what I'm asking for, but not my will but yours be done. It is my experience that when people talk to the Lord that way too often, they will eventually quit praying out of fear that their will and God's will will not mesh. So they stop praying specific prayers or they stop talking to God altogether because they don't want to risk the no. When we pray but if not prayers, 
or make those types of declarations before God and to others, what we are doing is closing in every other option so that it ceases to exist and making a declaration before God that I will stay with you no matter what. No matter what. And I'll continue to pray and make declarations before you and others that I'm with you because I have rolled the stone of my life onto you. There is no other option. There is no plan B. So, Lord, this is what I'm hoping for and this is what I'm asking for, but if not, I will not be moved. Imagine what happens when we pray, but if not, prayers for people that need healing. We ask God to heal them, but if not, I will not be moved. What if we pray, but if not, prayers for ourselves? Lord, this is what I'm asking and this is what I'm desiring, but if not, I will not be moved. See what it does for us? It shuts off every other trail. When you begin to talk that way before God, you have rolled the stone of your life onto Him. Whatever it takes, whatever the outcome is, I will not be moved. But if not, Here's what that can sound like. Lord, I'm worried about how to pay my bills. So I'm asking you to help take care of this. I don't know how you'll do it, Lord. I don't know how you'll do it, but I'm asking you to take care of it. But if not, I will remain faithful to everything your word teaches, and I will remain faithful to you. Lord, I'm asking for healing for plug in a name. They're so special to me, and I want their life to be extended. But if not... I will not be moved. Nothing will shake me. Lord, I'm asking for, and see how this works, you can apply it to anything you want, but if not, I will not be moved. I will not be moved. It is in declarations like that that we tend to get to see the Lord show up in the midst of the furnace and lead us through it. But if not, declarations Help us roll the stone of our life onto the Lord. Try it. Try it. Because this is a 24-hour rhythm given to us by God, let me just give you four things that can help with it on a daily basis, every 24 hours. Number one may surprise you. Pray before you eat. Here it is up on the screen. Pray before you eat. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says, Whatever you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of the Lord. So I just morphed that into this, pray before you eat. Now here's why I say that. We're taught when we're little kids to pray before we eat, fold your hands, bow your head, close your eyes, and it's a wonderful practice, wonderful practice. But what we, we tend to mistake by the prayers that we offer in those moments is that we're asking God to bless the food in front of us and the hands of those that prepared it, which is a great prayer, it really is, but let's be honest about it. If I'm praying before I eat in the cab of my pickup with a double quarter pounder and fries and a large Coke sitting next to me, I may be pushing the limits of the sovereignty of God to say, Lord, please bless this to the nourishment of my body. <laughs> By praying before you eat, you're simply reminding yourself of where all the provisions of your life come from. That's why we pray before we eat. We're thanking God for His power and His providence. So pray before you eat. It helps you stay committed. It helps you keep the stone of your life with God. 
while we're talking about prayer, look at number two. Pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 has that great teaching in it. Paul writes there, he just says, pray without ceasing, which means develop a pattern of prayer that never stops and is never interrupted. If you want to keep the stone of your life rolled on to the Lord, then learn how to pray without ceasing. Develop a healthy pattern of prayer in your life that is so conversational that nothing stops it. You're praying no matter what. Now that doesn't mean you're praying churchy sounding prayers. Oh Lord, we beseech thee now to come into our life and bring your divine guidance unto us. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a prayer that says, Lord, I'm, I'm leaving the house now and I'm headed into the unknown. Please go before me. We're talking about prayers that say, Lord, I'm, I'm walking into a meeting and, and I know it's going to be really difficult. So I need your presence with me, possibly to put your hand over my mouth and at other times to kick me in the side and make me say what I need to. Praying without ceasing. It is so conversational that we know what to ask of God. Number three. Think good thoughts. Philippians chapter 4 verses 8 and 9 teaches us to take captive every thought that we have and to think about the things of God rather than the things of the world. If you are going to keep the stone of your life rolled on to the Lord, then you protect your thought life. I don't know if you've ever studied this out. You probably have. A mouse can get into your house, your shed, your barn, whatever, through a hole that's just that big. A mouse can get in a hole that big and do all kinds of damage. The devil doesn't need that much room. So if you give more room than that in your brain to him, he's going to come in and build a home, and he's going to do a lot of damage. So take captive every thought. Number four, speak the word of God. Psalm 119, verse 11, has David, King David, same one who wrote, Psalm chapter 37, making this statement, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. If you want to keep the stone of your life rolled onto Jesus, then learn how to speak the word of God over the situations that you deal with. Here are some examples. If you are anxious, you're dealing with anxiety on a regular basis and worry finds a home in your life, then you memorize passages like this from Philippians chapter 4 as well. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. In those moments where anxiety is welling up, you speak the word of God over it, so that the peace of God that transcends all understanding can come to rest on you. Learn to speak the word of God over the issues of your life, and that helps you roll the stone of your life onto Jesus. If you deal with anger issues, and that is a common issue in the world that we live in today, then learn to speak the Word of God over those moments where you feel anger rising up within you. One of the ways that you can do that is by memorizing Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, where Paul writes, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. When anger starts to take hold, you remind yourself of the fruits of the Spirit. Well, we need to wrap this up, so I'm going to invite the worship team to come, and I'll leave you with just one other thought. If you are going to roll the stone of your life, onto the Lord, 
and commit your ways to him in such a way that you can trust him no matter what, one of the riskiest and most difficult things you may have to do is cut out every other God in your life. You go deep into your life and you ask, what is there that sits in my life as a God that I need to deal with? Because as long as there is another one there, you have not rolled the stone of your life onto the Lord. Your commitment is not fully with Him. It is with all these other small g gods. That could be things like work or money or possessions, relationships, hobbies, any number of different things. We were with some ministers from around the country just a few weeks ago, and one of them made this statement. We have a false God permeating our society. Its name is our children. An interesting statement. Even our children can become a false God for us. Well, when you go looking for those false gods, you allow yourself to come back to this in Exodus chapter 20 where the Ten Commandments are recorded. Verse 3 starts them out with these words. You shall have no other gods before me. So you've got to get rid of them. When you do, you roll the stone of your life onto the Lord and shut off the back trail and every other side trail so that you stay with him no matter what and you can make but if not declarations to him. See what happens. Daily basis, four things. We trust, we delight, we commit, and we rest.